Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Hey, it's great to see you this morning. Glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be camping out there in just a little bit. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to just recognize a couple of people and say some uh, some thank yous. If you guys notice, we had a lot of students on stage this morning. Next week, we will as well as our uh, youth band is going to help lead worship. But the two ladies who were over here singing, as well as Caleb, who's sitting in the middle of the room today, he wasn't on stage this morning, but uh, they actually won the talent show at Dobbins Bennett this past week. And so I just wanted to recognize that accomplishment and uh, tell them what a great job they did. And then thank Thanks for taking your talents that God's given to you and also investing that in our church and just uh, being people who have a passion and a heart for God and worshiping Him. Uh, I love that we get to live out our faith uh, everywhere that we live, work, and play. That's what we talk about around here a lot. And so I'm grateful for students who are doing that and living those things out. And it's important for us to think about those things because of what we're looking about in this series. We started a teaching series last week uh, called The Kingdom of God. And so what we find is that Jesus was obsessed with this idea of God's kingdom. And when you look at the gospel of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus's teachings about the kingdom of God just consistently. He's always talking about the kingdom of God. Then Luke tells us in the book of Acts that after Jesus's death and resurrection, when Jesus came back to life, he spent 40 days with his disciples. And his primary teaching when he was with his disciples for those 40 days was the kingdom of God. Like Jesus is passionate about the kingdom of God and making that known to us. And so if Jesus is teaching on these things, and he's passionate about that, it means he wants us as his disciples, as those who follow him, to really grasp this. He wants us to know what his kingdom is and how we live in it. And so last week, as we started talking about this, we kind of defined the kingdom, and it's from a a quote by a guy named George Ladd. You'll see this on the screens. But here's how we're thinking about the kingdom. The kingdom is primarily the dynamic reign or the kingly rule of God and derivatively the sphere in which his rule is experienced. So where God rules and reigns, his kingdom exists. And so when we think about this, we talked last week about the idea that the kingdom of God is more than just a place. It's more than just heaven where God's dwelling is and where we'll one day exist with God. It's also a culture that Jesus brought to the earth. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, I want you to pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth the same as it is in heaven. Right? And so the kingly rule and reign of Jesus, the kingly rule and reign of God is everywhere that his reign is experienced. So the kingdom is that sphere in which his rule is experienced. Then we said there's two kind of big ideas for us to understand about the kingdom that I want us to grasp and pay attention to as we walk through this. So let me give you these two things. Number one is that there is a king who established the kingdom and he reigns over the kingdom with sovereignty. That there's a king who's over this whole thing, that he puts it into motion, he uh, establishes it, it is the king's kingdom, and he rules sovereignly within his kingdom. And then the second thing that we find is, is that God invites us to be citizens of that kingdom. That the introduction is there to live under the rule and reign of Christ. 
And then every single person on planet earth has to determine, are we going to yield ourselves to God? Are we going to place ourselves under the sovereign authority of King Jesus? And are we going to live as citizens of his kingdom where he rules and he reigns over us? And so that's what we're really looking at and thinking about with the kingdom. And then to grasp these two things, Jesus tells a story about a vineyard. And we're going to see that in just a minute in Matthew chapter 21. But before we get there, I want to take us back to one more place that we looked at last week. We read it before the service last week. And so I want to kind of introduce it in the middle of the message today. This is from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It's going to be on the screen if you want to follow along and see it here. It says this. This is from Isaiah's time. He's writing about a vineyard. And he says this. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleaned it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it. And he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have already done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Right, so in Isaiah's teaching, God plants a vineyard, and that vineyard is described as or defined as Israel. He says, these are my chosen people. This is the nation that I adopted for myself. I brought them into a relationship with me. There's a partnership between us, and my expectations for this nation, these people that I gathered in to be with me, my expectation was that they would bear fruit that would be consistent with my kingdom in heaven, that they would introduce that same concept and idea here on earth. But when I looked at the the nation that I had planted, the vineyard that I had planted, it only yielded bad fruit. And then at the end of the story, we're told that God looked for justice, but he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And so Jesus looks at things and he goes, everything that I wanted the kingdom of God to do in coming on the earth through this nation that I had chosen for myself, through these people that I brought around for myself and entered into partnership with, everything that I wanted for them and hoped for them and chose for them, they went the opposite direction. And instead of yielding good fruit and producing grapes, they yielded bad fruit. And the fruit that he's talking about there is the acts of the kingdom. He's going, this is not about are they grapes or not. He's going, these are the things that when I think about heaven, I think about my righteous reign. I think about my sovereignty. I think about my grace and my mercy and my compassion and my goodness and my righteousness. And those things are not being seen on earth in the people that I've chosen. So as I look for goodness and there's bloodshed. I look for righteousness and there's injustice. I look for these things and they're not taking place. The culture of God's kingdom is not being replicated within the nation that he chose as his representatives. So God is looking for them to take care of widows and orphans. He's looking for them to be merciful to the strangers and the aliens. He's looking for them to take care of the weak, those who can't provide for themselves. He's saying all of these things are things that I want to see, but instead you're acting with selfish, evil intent and abusing power rather than bringing God's peace. So with that as the backdrop, 
Jesus is going to tell another story, and he's going to take this same vineyard parable, and he's going to introduce some different ideas with it. And so when you think about Jesus and the, the audience that he's talking to, the audience would have been incredibly familiar with Isaiah's teaching in Isaiah chapter 5. Like they would have known this. They would have been familiar with it. This would have been something that would have permeated their understanding of God and who he is and themselves as his nation. They would have gotten it. And so Jesus is going to take that same story from Isaiah and he's going to tell his own. So here's what we find in Matthew chapter 21. Start reading in verse 33. It says, so listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. And the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and let's take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? In verse 41, the crowd responds and says, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So as we read this parable, because of the teaching in Isaiah, we already know a couple of things. Number one, we know that the vineyard owner is God, right? We know that the one who plants the vineyard, the one who establishes the vineyard, the one who cultivates it, that's God. And then we also know, number two, that Israel is the vineyard. So as Jesus is talking about these things, his audience would have already gotten these ideas. The vineyard owner is God. We're the vineyard. These are the people of God. This is his choice inheritance. These are the ones that he has put in place to bring his rule and his reign. And then God has done everything to establish the vineyard well. Like when you look at this and you go, he built a watchtower. He built a wall. He built a wine press. He made everything possible for the vineyard to succeed. He doesn't just kind of go, well, guys, good luck. Figure it out. Go plant your own stuff and do your own thing, and hopefully you get a good vineyard out of this. He goes, I'm going to do everything at the very beginning to establish things the way that I want them so that you will be able to walk in peace and do the things that I desire because I've made it possible for you. I've given you everything that you're going to need to succeed. And yet, even with that, there's a failure. And so Jesus says in this story a different thing than Isaiah says. It says he puts tenants in place to care for and cultivate the garden. And these are the religious leaders of Jesus's time. And we know that because at the end of the parable, what do the the religious leaders say? They go, "Uh, guys, he's talking about us. Like they get it. 
This would be like having a conversation with somebody and kind of like talking around things. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation before where somebody's like, yeah, and some people think this. And you're like, wait a minute, I think that. And I think you already knew that I think that. And so I'm pretty sure you're talking about me without talking about me, right? And so Jesus is going, yeah, let me tell you guys what's going on. As you're listening to this story, there was a vineyard owner, there was a vineyard, and then there were some tenants. And let's talk about those tenants. And the tenants are standing in the audience. And they get it. And so when Jesus finishes, they go, he's talking about us. We got to get rid of this guy. We need to deal with him. And so the problem with these tenants was that they started thinking like owners instead of servants. That they start having the mentality of this is ours. God created it, established it, but then he gave it to us. And we're going to do with it how we want things. We're going to do with it what we desire. His expectations don't matter anymore. It's our expectations. We're going to do the things that we want to do regardless of what he says. His rule and his reign are no matter to us. And man, how many times do we do that? How many times have I done that? Where we'll say things like, well, I know better than God. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I know that God says this, but I know better than God. I'm going to choose my own path because obviously I know better. Uh, or we might say something like, well, I don't need God to tell me what to do in my life. Ever been there before? Where it's like, hey, I don't, I don't need somebody, an outside force, an outside perspective telling me what to do. If you've got kids, this is your life a lot of the time, going, mom and dad don't know anything. I'll do my own thing. I don't need you telling me what to do, right? And we act like that toward God all the time. I don't need you telling me what to do. I'll figure it out. I'll go my own way. I'll make my plans. I'll do my thing. Or maybe you've been in a situation before where you said, I know what the word of God says, I just don't care. And I'm going to do my thing regardless of what God's word says. I know what it says, but I'm not going to listen. I don't trust it. I don't put myself under its authority, and I'm not going to do what it says. And so if you've ever found yourself in one of those places before, you start thinking of yourself in your story and in the story of God as being the owner rather than being a servant. You no longer see yourself in God's story as a steward of the things that God has given to you. You see yourself as the owner of it all and you want to be in charge. And you're going to remove God from his throne and you're going to usurp his kingdom's power. And you're going to take it for yourself. And this becomes all about what I want and not about what does God want for me and what does God want for his world and what is he doing in my life to bring his rule and his reign to play in this world. And so we have to figure out where we stand in this. So as we get back to the story, here's what we find. God makes the vineyard. He does everything to make it successful and it is successful. And he says at harvest time, he sends a servant to collect what was rightfully his from the vineyard. But what do they do? They beat him and they send him away. And at that point, the audience who's listening to Jesus would have this idea in their mind of going, well, the vineyard owner is going to be mad about that and he's going to send an army next to deal with those people. That would be the traditional thought in this day and time. If you go against the powerful force of the owner, he's going to come and he's going to drag you out and he's going to destroy you and he's going to take back what's rightfully his. But here's what we find. That's not what happens. They're expecting those to be the next words out of Jesus' mouth. But what's it say? Then he sent another servant. And then another. And they beat one. And they killed another. They stoned the third. 
And then after that, the audience is really hyped up and they're like, well, surely now he's going to come in guns blazing and he's going to take this thing back and he's going to take what's his and he's going to do away with these terrible servants. And yet, what do we see? What does the passage say? Jesus goes on. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another and stole a third. Verse 36. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. And you're going, Jesus or God in this parable just continues to give chance after chance after chance. I mean, he sends waves of servants to come in to try to regain the tenant's original intent to go back to being stewards and stop acting like owners. He keeps giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And what we find is that in the Old Testament, what Jesus is pointing to is that these represent the prophets of God. That the prophets would come to the people with warnings and woes. And they would call the people of God to repent and come back to God. Leave your shameful ways. Leave your idolatry. Leave the injustice that you've created. And come back to the original intent of the Father and what he's created and designed for his life to be and his world to be like. And what we see is, though, that they don't repent. They don't return. They keep destroying the servants that God sends. So what's the last step? Verse 37 says, last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. What do they want? They want it all. We want to be king. We want to be in charge. Let's kill him and then we're going to inherit what would have gone to him. And so their intention is to get rid of God from their life. So verse 39 says, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. By the way, Jesus is giving some vision of what's going to happen to him even in that statement. That when Jesus is killed, it's done outside of the city of Jerusalem. That he's taken to Golgotha, a hill outside of the city. That he's not crucified within the city gates, that they throw him out. And they kill him there. And so Jesus is telling us that the king has sent his son and they're going to throw him out of the vineyard and they're going to kill him. So we often live with this idea that God should deal with injustice immediately. That God should do some things with immediate action and harshly. But more often than not, God doesn't operate that way. When we see the terrible things that are happening in our world, and sometimes the question goes, well, God, why don't you just step in and intervene and immediately cut that stuff off? Why do you allow injustice to persist? Why, God, do you allow evil people to continue to have their place in this world? Why don't you just step in and destroy them? That's what the people who are hearing Jesus' parable are thinking. But Jesus and God, the one who has all power, will harness it and work toward restoration of nations and individuals. That God is going to say, I'm going to harness my power to destroy. I could easily do that. I could take every injustice in the world, and as soon as it happens, I could crush it. But what God most often does is he sends opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and to return back to him. That he's going, I'm going to give you another chance to return to me. Our mentality, our idea is that God should just move in judgment. God is not in the business of condemning people and eradicating them. Like if that's your idea of God, you're missing the whole perspective of who God says that he's like. We live with this mindset 
that God should just get rid of wicked people in the world so that they get what's coming to them at the final judgment. And if you're waiting for that, if you're just going, every time I see evil in the world, I just want God to crush it, you don't have the heart of your king. So I I saw a video this week, and I've been thinking about whether or not I would even share this this morning or not, because I don't know. I'm going to talk about it. Here we go. So I saw this video this week, and it's this guy who's claiming to be a pastor, and he's just doing a video, and he's holding the Bible, and he's, he's doing this thing, and he self kind of says about himself, I'm one of those hell and damnation and brimstone pastors. That's who I am. And then he just starts going off on some other guys that are in ministry. And he starts calling some people out by name. And he's like, these guys, and they say that they're pastors and they say they're preaching God's word, but they've got tattoos and they've got earrings and they do all this stuff. And he's like, I cannot wait for God to throw those men into hell. And praise God that Billy Graham is dead. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we have gone off to the deep end over here, right? Like, he is just going, the people that I don't agree with, the people that don't do things my way, the people that I think have gone in a different path with the gospel, they should just be eradicated and sent to hell, which condemn them all. Church, that is not the heart of God. He is not a God who takes joy in condemnation, in sending people to hell. In fact, God doesn't send anyone to hell. We choose to separate ourselves from God. And what we're going to find in just a minute is that God is just, and so he has to deal with sin. But here's what I want us to see about the king of the kingdom, if you're taking notes this morning, that the king is patient. We live in a kingdom with a king who's patient. And in his patience, he is giving excessive and unnecessary opportunities to repent and to come back and embrace his kingdom. It is not necessary for God to give you chance after chance after chance after chance in your rebellion against him to return to him. It's not necessary. He does it because he's full of grace and mercy. He's a good God who's righteous and he's long-suffering with us. And the idea is that he is excessive in pouring out his grace and that he gives us multiple opportunities to repent and turn to him. And Praise God that that's true. Because I have been so much in need every single day in my life to experience the mercy of God, to have another chance to return to him when I've failed against him, to have another chance when I've rebelled against his kingdom rule and his reign. And so in this kingdom, we have a king who's patient. He shows grace and he mercy. He sends servant after servant to the farmers. And these servants that Jesus is speaking of, these, pro- uh, these prophets from the Old Testament that have been dealt with, they gave the word of God to the people, calling them to repent, but by and large, the people don't turn. They destroy the prophets instead. And so God goes to the extreme, and he goes, when I think about being a patient king who's going to be excessive in my grace and pour out unnecessary opportunities for people to return, what's the most excessive thing that I can do? What's the last person I'm going to send? It's going to be my son. I'm going to send Jesus into this world and he's going to come and he's going to give up his life on the cross to pay for my sins. But the tenants rejected him also. 
which really leads to a personal question for us this morning. If you haven't embraced Jesus as king of your life, if you've rejected him and thrown him out, how many times will you reject him? How many more times will you hear the gospel of grace and mercy and hope and long-suffering and continue to reject it? You have an opportunity today to say, I hear the voice of my king calling me again to return to him, to come back into relationship with him, and it's time for me to embrace his son. This is the last chance you get. His son is the last opportunity. After this, there is no more forgiveness of sin. If you reject the son, you get the wrath of God. And you go, hold on just a second. Didn't you say that a few minutes ago that God's wrath is not going towards people? Well, yes and no. God does not take joy in condemning people. God does not find pleasure in bringing his punishment. But because God is just and because God is righteous, he has to deal with sin. And if you reject his son, then it's only right for him to deal with sinfulness in a way that matches the holiness of him that you've rejected, of the one that you've rejected. And so when Jesus moves in this way, we're going to find, as we look at the story again, that the crowd asks this story or asks this question to Jesus when he says, Jesus actually asks the question, he says, so when the owner of the vineyard comes, after they've rejected his son, what will he do to the tenants? And then the crowd's the one that answers in verse 41. It says, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard out to tenants who will give his share of the crop to him at harvest time. So those who want the rule and reign of God, they're welcomed into his kingdom. Embrace his rule. Take his reign into your life. Acknowledge him as king. Submit yourself to him. Because if we don't, we come to what the the audience calls a wretched end. Because those who reject him will be sent away to an eternal destruction. And when we think about this and we go, well, hold on. Again, let's just kind of wade into this a little bit. Why does God send people to hell? And the answer to that question is, God doesn't send anyone to hell. If you reject him, you choose that path. He's given you clearly the path. Embrace the son and have life with me. Reject him and you'll be sent away from me. I think a lot of people's mentality in this world is I want to reject Jesus and God and his rule and his reign, but I still want to live in heaven with him for eternity and have the pleasures of heaven for eternity. Why? If you reject Jesus, you're going to be miserable in eternity with him. You're not going to want him. You're not going to live under his rule and reign on earth. You're definitely not going to live under his rule and reign in heaven. So God says, I'm going to separate those who embrace my kingdom and those who reject my kingdom. But we have to remember that hell was not created for people. Hell was a place that was created for Satan and his angels. And so I want you to listen to this parable again, another story in Matthew chapter 25, or teaching rather, that Jesus is talking to the crowds and he says this, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. He is going to be king. That is a predetermined thing. He will be king and sit on his throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison? And when did not help you? And he'll reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do. For me, then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So let me point out two things to you that we find from this passage, just to focus on a little bit. Goats and sheep are different in a lot of different ways, but one of the key ways as far as biblical passages are concerned is that goats will hear the voice of their master and they'll follow it. When the master calls, the sheep will go. Goats, on the other hand, are unruly and untamed, and they will hear the voice of their master calling to them, and they'll just kind of keep on doing their own thing and go their own way. They won't respond to the voice of their master. And so Jesus is saying, you hear the voice of God, you hear the teachings about God, and some of you, those who are righteous, will follow him. And those who want your own rule and your own reign, you'll go your own direction. You'll do your own thing. You'll completely reject this. And then the second thing that we find here is you notice what kind of things was Jesus looking for? He's looking for people who embrace the culture of the kingdom on earth under his rule and his reign. That he says, I want people in this culture of the kingdom who will say, we saw people who were sick, we helped them. We saw people who were unclothed, we clothed them. We saw people who were in prison, we visited them. We saw all these needs that existed and we moved toward them to meet the needs because Jesus is our king. We did it with Jesus as the central part of our life to move out into the hurt of the world and bring his peace, his shalom. And so we're going to bring Jesus and his rule and his reign into the earth. And there's going to be others that he goes, and they're going to ask this question, well, when did we see you like that? If Jesus, if we had seen you naked and hungry and in prison, don't you think we'd have done something about it? And Jesus goes, well, the same thing. Whatever you saw of the least of these and whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Your heart wasn't toward kingdom things where you ministered to the needs of others in my name. Your heart was about you, your rule, your reign. And so Jesus calls them into account for that. And here's the last thing that I'm going to give you on your notes this morning. As subjects of God's kingdom, We're meant to produce fruit that's consistent with his character. If we're going to be citizens of God's kingdom, we're supposed to be people who have fruitfulness in our lives that that bears out the way of his character. So we ask ourselves again the question, what's the king like? 
And we come back to this place of going, he's patient. He's patient. He's kind. He's gentle. He's long-suffering. He will wait for you. And he will wait for you. And he will wait for you. But a time will come when there's no more waiting. Either you'll draw your last breath, at which point in time there's no more opportunity for you to respond to God and his rule and his reign, or Jesus will return and bring his kingdom back. And in that moment, you have no more opportunity to repent and return to Jesus. So he's giving you chance after chance after chance in this world to leave your sinful ways, to leave your rule and your reign, and to come to him and to say, I want your kingdom. I want to have your reign in my heart. I want to take your kingdom and your culture of the kingdom out into this world. And I want to leave these things to bear. And so for us during this series, we're going to continually ask this question, what is the king like? And we learn to do these things that the king looks like by honoring his word, that we take the things that he says and we put them into play in our lives and we go, I want to do what your word says. I want to bring this into our culture. I want to make sure that the kingdom of God is dominating my life and then I want to live out the kingdom ways in this world. Where I live, work, and play, I want to introduce the kingdom and his light and his glory into this world. And then the second thing that we do is we embrace his heir. This is what gets the tenants in trouble, right? The very last straw for God is when the heir comes... And instead of embracing him, you reject him and you want to destroy him. There's no more hope for repentance. Because if you completely reject him and you walk away from him and you die without him, there's no more opportunity. If he comes back before you embrace his, his direction in your life, before you embrace his rule and his reign in your life, there's no more opportunity. So here's the two things that I'm praying for this series that I want us to talk about, and then we're going to wrap this up. Brian, if you want to come back up, we're going to do one last song together this morning. And, and we're going to sing about this idea of a king who, who is like this with us. He's merciful and kind and gracious. But here's the two things that I'm praying about in this series. Number one, that believers in Jesus will understand how to live as citizens of his kingdom that brings the light of his kingdom daily into being. That we understand how to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And we change our community and as communities are changed, our world is changed because the kingdom of God comes to play in this world through the citizens of the kingdom. So church, would we learn to be citizens of God's kingdom, to reflect the heart of the king, to be like him in every way, to not want people's destruction and not to condemn people for their sin, but to be patient toward them, to respond to them with graciousness and with humility, that we would look like our king. And then number two, I'm praying that if you're not currently a follower of Jesus, and I pray that you find your way into this kingdom, that you embrace him, that you repent of your own sinful ways, of your own heart to be in charge of life, that you would repent of wanting to be in complete control, and that you would give your life over to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, that you would put yourself on your face before him and kneel in submission to him because he's worthy of it. He is the king and it is his kingdom and he wants you to be a citizen in that kingdom. 
And so this morning as we close, the opportunity for you just to take in this moment and say, God, I want your rule and reign in my heart. And from this day forward, I'm going to submit myself to you as best I know how with the power of your Holy Spirit leading me, that I invite you to change my life, that I surrender to you. Forgive me for the rejection of your rule and your reign that I've always wanted to be in charge and I've done it my way. And I've said no to you so many times, but today I'm saying yes. So some of you in this room need to just posture yourself in that way to say, God, I want your rule and your reign in my life. And from this day forward, you just start to submit yourself to Jesus as king and you live for his ways. And if you want to do that today, there's a couple of different ways that you can respond in that. Number one is just uh, come and talk to us. We're going to have some people on either side of the room that will be happy to pray with you during this time. They'll be happy to talk with you about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Number two, there's a connection card in the chairs around you. Or if you're watching from home, there's a connection tab on our website. And there's a place on that card that just you can check a box that says, I want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. We want to have that conversation with you. We want to encourage you toward what a relationship with Jesus looks like because it'll change your life and it'll give you some things that you've never dreamed of before with the peace that you're missing in your heart. When Jesus rules supremely in your life, he brings his peace to rule in his heart, in your heart with him. There's some incredible things that happen when we surrender ourselves to Jesus as king. And so my hope would be that today you would say, this is a step forward for me to give my life to Jesus Christ. And then for those of us who are followers of Jesus in this room, to say, I want to make sure I explore and investigate in my own life. Are there places where I have created small little kingdoms that Jesus doesn't rule and reign in? Does Jesus rule over my marriage? Does Jesus have control over my parenting? Is Jesus in charge of my work? Do I surrender and submit to Jesus in every aspect of my life? Or are there still places where I've got my little kingdom that Jesus is not allowed to put his handprint on? And if that's true today, just confess that to him, turn it over to him, and walk in his kingdom ways. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.